time with Rock Nation, and uh, she also, um, you know, I, I always say this, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but uh, she sings so well that she sang for Jay-Z, and he just signed her, like, right on the spot. Like, she's that amazing. And uh, she, to me, is um, reflective of what uh, we want to see in entertainment. You know, we got to represent our own. And he sent me this book, right? So he sent me this big book on Black history. You know, this is this is what, this is where Victory's family comes from, right? Where she's got a father who, uh, she, her father went out of his way to introduce her to me because uh, her, her dad said, I, you know, she's going to be really famous one day. He called it before she was even big. And his, her, um, her dad said, I want her to be um, connected to the black community. Basically, he said, I want her to be V1. Like, so no matter where she goes in the world, no matter what she does, I want her to understand where she comes from and what she represents. And so he had brought her to uh, my event and I asked her to sing. And I, I meet a lot of singers and a lot of rappers and everything else, honestly, just we, we, have, we have an oversupply of rappers. No disrespect to a rapper, but man, we gotta, we gotta diversify a little bit. And um, and so anyway, I, I thought that she would just be, you know, a nice singer. I didn't know she was gonna have a voice that literally made everybody in the room freaking melt. And, and I had her sing at my wedding uh, because she is my wife and I's favorite singer. We listen to her music. And th this is one of the things we do not disagree on. So her dad sent me, sent me this big old book and it's a black history book written by uh, Dr. Walt Walter Milton and Joel A. Friedman, PhD. And this book is about how many pages is this sucker? This sucker is um, 1,246 pages. And I just think it would be a blast like to be able to go through all of Dr. Claude Amos's books like page by page and then go through like a 1,300 page black history book and literally just break each one, each segment down piece by piece. I mean, how much fun would that be? So, uh, so anyways, we got a lot of good stuff that we can dig into. There's also Amos Wilson's The Blueprint for Black Power. Uh, that's another one that um, that I've had sitting on my desk for a long time. So I, I want to just learn it all. You know, I think that that's what we have to do in order to um, understand who we are, where we came from, and what you know, just what we have to do next, right? So um, anyway, uh, so tonight uh, for the book club, we're going to actually jump into Black Labor, White Wealth. And um, and we're on page 96. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about, we're going to start off with black patriotism and uh, what Dr. Anderson sees as some of the flaws of black patriotism, uh, even though um, I, I don't think you should be ashamed if you are a patriot, because um, this is your country too. And uh, a lot of you are veterans. I know that for a fact, because I know that a lot of veterans are attracted to the platform. And I personally, and I couldn't understand it. I, I said, you know, I respect soldiers. I was, my father was a soldier. I, I wasn't in the military, but I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody willing to put their life on the line for anything. Any anybody that says I will die for this, you have my respect, even if it's some something I don't agree with. Um, and uh, and so my father was a Vietnam veteran, and uh, and I couldn't understand. I said it seems like so many people that follow uh, the platform are soldiers. I, I said, where does that come from? Because I went to San Diego, and I just had a little meetup, and I just sent that email. So I'm in San Diego. Anybody want to meet up? You know, and a bunch of you know, a few people came, and. Uh, and about like two thirds of them were in military. And I said, why are so many military people following me? And what he said was, he said, like, this was his one interpretation. He didn't speak for all veterans, of course, but he said, you know, in military, you know, we understand what it means to be strategic and to have a plan <laughs> to solve a problem, you know, not just sit around and complain about the problem. So uh, he said that, you know, one thing is different about the platform that we have here is we don't sit around and just complain about how hard it is to be black and what white people are doing and what we can't do and how crippled we are as black people. We talk about uh, things that are empowering. And I, and I love that. I mean, I, I like to solve problems. I'm a mathematician. 
And, you know, when I was getting my degree in mathematics, you didn't get no points for not solving the problem. You know, you didn't you didn't get points on your test because you tried to solve the problem or because you complained about the problem or because you just looked at the problem. Right. Or you identify the problem. <laughs> you know, you got points if you solve the damn thing. You know, so ultimately, I think that when it comes to everything that we're doing up in here, I think it's very important that we say, how do we solve the problem? So uh, to solve the problem, we created a almost like a pop up think tank for this year's convention. Um, AllBlackNaturalConvention.com uh, is where you can go. We're going to have a Q&A to kind of talk to you guys about it uh, in case you have any questions. But basically, it's going to be in Orlando, Florida, the weekend of October 29th through November 1st. And uh, we have I, I didn't know we had this many people. We have more experts and speakers than we've ever had before. We have 59 people, 59 speakers of different backgrounds with different perspectives who are all coming together to solve problems and to talk about how we can do better as a community. I'm talking about people that know real estate, people that know relationships, people that know politics, people that know stock market investing, people that know crypto, people that know how to grow your own food, how to shoot a gun, how to survive in this world, you know, in the case of a disaster, just everything that we need to know, how to build things, how to own things, all this stuff. So uh, that's what we're doing. And uh, the URL, if you want to learn more, it's uh, allblacknationalconvention.com. Uh, that's allblacknationalconvention.com. All right, so let me get started here and start reading. Uh, I'm on page 96 of Black Labor, White Wealth by Dr. Claude Anderson. And uh, he starts off talking about black patriotism. And here's what Dr. Anderson says. He says, ironically, no other racial or ethnic group in America has demonstrated the long-held patriotism of blacks. Blacks are the only non-white people who have fought in the defense of America in every military conflict since the country's beginning. That's a big deal, right? Nobody else can say that. Um, blacks have fought in armed conflicts against the mother countries of most of the ethnic immigrants now in America. So a lot of the immigrants uh, literally came come from countries that used to be enemies of America. Like, so if you're Italian, Mussolini, you know, was it was an it was an enemy of America. You know, German. Um, I remember uh, I was kind of surprised when I read about how some of the former Nazis came to the United States and ended up, um, you know, working for Coca Cola and NASA. Werner Werner von Braun was a Nazi, and he actually led NASA to the moon. He led the whole, they let him lead the whole space program. And uh, Max Schmeling, who did, who fought Joe Lewis, uh, uh, who was from Germany, Max Schmeling became an executive with Coca-Cola. And, uh, you know, and as you know, Joe Lewis died broke. Joe Lewis died with, with nothing. Um, and uh, and that's obviously an issue. Uh, so it says uh, blacks, blacks are the only non-white group to have fought uh, in every military conflict. Blacks have fought in armed conflicts against the mother countries of all the immigrants in America. For nearly four centuries, blacks were the first to die in support of the principles of the nation. Yet they are excluded while foreign immigrants arrive daily at the doors of the great nation and are welcome. The ethics of hard work. It is common to hear Japanese, Chinese, and Germans being cited as model hard workers. Before blacks became obsolete as common labor in the 1960s, they were the models for, do, for doing the hardest, dirtiest, most dangerous, most backbreaking work. Ironically, conservatives in government are suggesting that emulating these recent immigrants and their hard work is the cure for blacks' protracted poverty and high unemployment. Recommending more hard work for a race of ex-slaves is similar to curing an alcoholic by suggesting that the drunk do more drinking. Having never been compensated for centuries of past labor is the bigger part of the problem, not whether black people are willing to work hard. And that's that's kind of ironic and crazy, right? That 
we are stereotyped as being lazy and we're the only people who actually work for free and worked really hard for free. You know, um, a lot of people don't talk about it, but, you know, whenever I watch um, a college football game and I see the black men absolutely dominating the, the football game or I watch the NFL and I see those black men that can run and jump and, and lift faster and stronger than any, any other human being out there. Um, I'm seeing the results of hundreds of years of unpaid labor. Um, I'm seeing the results of slave breeding. Y'all know it's real. They had those, they had freaking farms where they bred the biggest, strongest slaves. That's that's how we became a literally almost like a race of superhumans. Like we are literally, uh, I think because of this process, we have gifts. We're endowed with gifts that nobody else in the world can match. Nobody else. I mean, look at boxing, you know, ex excluding that, that thing with uh, your boy, I forgot his name, uh, Tyson Fury's guy, uh, Deontay Watt. We'll, we'll put that to the side. <laughs> but, you know, but most of the time, the black guy wins. Usually when there's the great white height, the black guy usually wins that, right? And uh, you look at Venus and Serena in um, tennis. You look at, and then even intellectual, intellectual sports like Tiger Woods in golf and, and uh, Simone Biles. I mean, you go down the list, Floyd Mayweather, that's a good example, right? There's something about the black athlete that nobody else can emulate. And, uh, and and it's really fascinating to me that they won't connect it to slavery. They, they're, they're that determined to act like it didn't happen, that they can sit there and watch black men and black women dominate in a way that no one else on earth is dominating and just act like it just kind of happened that way. It didn't just happen that way. Um, Jimmy the Greek, anybody remember Jimmy the Greek? When Jimmy the Greek was a sports commentator and he was a really big name in sports. And um, and he actually mentioned that. He, he mentioned slave breeding as one of the reasons black male athletes dominate and, and black female athletes as well. And uh, they fired him on the spot. Like you never saw Jimmy again. It was like, don't even mention slavery. You are banned from even mentioning what we did to black people, right? And, uh, and that's an insult to black people because uh, that's no different from somebody who commits a terrible crime, a rape or something, and then they say they beat you up every time you mention what they actually did uh, to you. So um, anyway, let me keep reading here. I'm, I'm on page 97. Uh, let's see. He says, if blacks were unwilling to work hard, it would be understandable after 400 years of no pay to low pay. Which ethnic immigrants in America have worked harder than the black slaves? Certainly the Japanese, Chinese, and Germans did not work harder in America than black slaves. If the Japanese, Chinese, and the Germans were the hardest workers, would it not have made more sense for colonial white society to have enslaved the Japanese, Chinese, or Germans rather than blacks who were allegedly will lazy and unwilling to work? Why would supposedly bright businessmen spend 250 years traveling halfway around the world to kidnap 35 to 50 million innocent but lazy blacks, then knowingly bring them back to America to do work that other ethnic groups could do better. Even in instances where these ethnic groups worked hard, they did it with the consciousness of paid free men. The indentured servants from India and the Chinese coolies, though they were mistreated, were still free and paid for their labor. Uh, they, they had the option to quit and return home to their homelands at any time they so desired. The sweatshops in New York, New York City were reprehensible, but the Chinese workers were free and paid. They were not property. No one owned, beat, or killed them, and their families uh, for not working. The Japanese are often held up as a labor model for blacks, but blacks were never treated as well as the Japanese, even though the blacks fought with the American military troops against the Japanese in World War II. If blacks had been treated as well as the Japanese, perhaps then they too could be held up as great respecters of hard work. The United States government paid $20,000 in reparations to each Japanese American who was forced to live in internment camps 
during the four years of World War II. For their three to four years of internment, the Japanese Americans were compensated nearly 42 years later. Not only did the United States government award reparations to each relocated Japanese, it gave the Japanese community a national apology. Granted, the reparations made after years of court battles and after most of those entitled to them were already dead can in no way compensate for what was lost. Still, it was a debt acknowledged and paid. Blacks, on the other hand, after four centuries of lost humanity, life, and wealth, have received nothing. Now, you know, I'm going to say this, though. Um, I think when you talk about uh, reparations, the reason I think that that's going to be an interesting debate, and I don't know how this is going to play out, is that the United States owes more money to us than they can afford to repay. Um, not to say that they can't just go borrow more, just like they've been doing so far. But, you know, you're talking about a $15 trillion debt in a country that is $28 trillion in debt. And the revenue per year for the U.S. government is about $3 trillion, about $3.2 trillion. So they literally owe us the equivalent of five years' pay, right? Now, I'm not saying that we can't get it. I'm not saying that they can't pay it. I'm saying it's going to be hard to extract that, especially if you're, you know, if you're nice about it. If, you know, it's like um, if you call somebody up, imagine if you, to just sort of give you the scale, imagine if you have a person who makes $30,000 a year and they are um, $280,000 in student loan debt. This is the, I'm scaling it down so you can kind of see it this way. So, so you've got a person who um, makes $30,000 a year, who's $280,000 in debt. And they owe you 150 grand. Is it going to be easy to get that person to pay you back? Yes or no? Are they going to pay you back voluntarily? No. Um, is you know are they going to pay you back if you ask them you know politely if you say hey man look you owe me 150 thousand and they're making 30k now that's that's their income and they need their money because they're 280k in debt already, right? To get that money out of them, you might have to go whoop somebody's ass. Like you really have to show up and make them pay you. You know that that's what <laughs> that's what the gangsters do. Like show up and say, okay, if you don't pay us, you won't have your legs tomorrow, uh, or you, you might not have your life, or we might go find whatever you love or whoever you love, and we might go do something to that person. Right? Not that I'm advocating for any kind of violence. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that you know they understand. That some things you can't get by asking, right? And uh, and getting blood out of a turtle uh, is is equivalent to getting money out of a broke person. And your government isn't—I wouldn't call your government broke. I would say your government is in over its head financially because that national debt is not a joke. Uh, this pandemic threw the debt way out of whack, and there's no coming back from that. They tend to go up; they don't go down. Like they don't—they always make promises to themselves that, that they don't keep. They're like they're a little bit—they're like kind of like a financial version of a drug addict. So, so they kind of just tell themselves these lies to make themselves feel better. Like, okay, we're going to borrow another three trillion, and we're going to pay it with, you know, with with tax tax increases over the next ten years. But by the time that those tax increases are supposed to come into play, they never keep their promises, and many of them are not even in office anymore. So they don't care. They're like, yeah, we'll just let we'll let the people in the future worry about it, and they're going to keep doing that. And that's why your debt, you know, it's twenty eight trillion. It'll be fifty trillion in maybe a, a, about probably a couple decades. I'm imagining, maybe even sooner than that. Especially if you have another, uh, if you have another pandemic, right? Um, okay, so <clears throat> let's see here. Uh, let's see. Winthrop D. Jordan, author of *White Over Black*, supported the white slaveholders' need for black labor, stating that it was impossible for white men to work the fields because, quote, the labor was so severe 
that the paid white servants did not perform the extremely hard work when blacks were available. The white masters prided themselves on being a leisure class and only doing gentlemen's work. If the five million black slaves were lazy, they took their example from the best teachers. So what he's basically is that uh, a lot of our people learned, if we learned laziness, uh, we learned it from them. They, they taught us how to be lazy and uh, we were kind of copying their behavior. Um, what else did he say? He says, what immigrants came to America for the purposes of hard work? In the formative years of this nation, most immigrants coming to America were vagrants, criminals, hustlers, adventurers, and others seeking to strike it rich quick. America was advertised as a place of unlimited land, natural resources, and a slave underclass. The hard work myth for immigrants contradicted the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, which says, give me your tired, yearning to be free. Tired immigrants did not leave their native lands around the world to come to America so they could work even harder. They, they, could, have, they could have worked hard where they were. They came to America to be free of undue hard labor. They came seeking opportunities to accumulate the fruits of their relatively easy labor here. They came to enjoy labor-saving devices. And they came escaping from the underclass status in their own countries to a place with a ready-made underclass, black people. At last, they knew they would not be on the bottom rung. So, you know, so coming to America, according to Dr. Anderson, was kind of like maybe what some people are doing now when they're going to the Internet, right? They're starting businesses on the Internet because they're trying to um, they're trying to get out and find a way to uh, make money in a different way. Right. You know, everybody's got a dream and the immigrants had their dream uh, similar to the dream of somebody, you know, starting an online business or a website or a Shopify store. Right. The land of milk and honey or somebody going out to California for the gold rush. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, that's the point that Dr. Anderson is making here. And then he talks about the rankings of different ethnic groups and uh, immigration policy and how immigration policy has been used to harm black people uh, in terms of diluting your vote, diluting your population numbers. So what he does is on table six on page 101 of Black Labor, White Wealth, which you can actually get a copy at Powernomics.com. Get copies of all the books at Powernomics.com. We'll put the holidays coming. Get them for your family, too. But on page 101, he shows a table, table six, and he says the U.S. government's preferential ordering of immigrants according to official quotas set in 1924. So at the very top, you have English uh, English uh, people who are Protestant. It was wide open immigration. You could take as many people from England as you wanted. Ireland uh, had a pretty big number, but it, so it was second on the list, but there was a cap of the number of Irish Protestants they would take. That was 34,000. Uh, and then you go down, and then when you get to the Far East, uh, which is the Buddhists and all that, you, they only allowed 100 Buddhists uh, or yellow people into the country per year. And then Hispanic was pretty restricted, and then African was closed. There was no immigration for any African person to come to the United States. So there were no more black people coming in. Um, so let's see here. Uh, so he says, who's who in the racial ethnic rankings? If blacks are at the bottom, who's at the middle and the top of the racial and ethnic ranking system? The major elements in determining one's ranking are race, skin color, country of origin, ethnicity, and religious denomination. The higher your ranking, the more you are welcome and preferred to live as a citizen in this nation. America was established as an English-speaking, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant nation. Wealth and power were concentrated at the top of the scale in the hands of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, WASPs, W-A-S-P, and decreased in accord with the darkness of a person's skin color. The racial and ethnic ordering, as shown in Table 6, is a comparative analysis of the allocation of benefits, access to resources, 
immigration policies and foreign affairs relationships. There has always been an open immigration policy with certain allied WASP nations. It is not possible for the United States to remain an English-only nation. However, government policies kept the American population and power close to the original founders and culture and other respects. The highest positions of wealth and power are held by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. These groups have well-entrenched social positions characterized by a predominance in economic and political power and buttressed with a strong, cohesive group solidarity. Since the founding of the nation, power and wealth have remained concentrated in the hands of the WASP. So, uh, let's stick a pin in that real quick. So, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers, uh, how many of y'all remember a video I did a long time ago uh, where I, I called it, um, What a Billionaire Told Me About Black People. Anybody remember that? Um that video by chance it was seen by like over a million people so some of y'all may have watched it but yeah so i did that video um and i did it uh, i was in new york city with my wife and she had to go in the store and i saw um and i was bored for a minute and i decided to um uh while she was in the store for three minutes i i, I pointed the camera at bank of a bank of america building and i told the story that this white guy told me about bank of america and what he explained was that Bank of America, um, if you look up the history, it was a, it was a power play by the Italian, uh, by Italian people. Uh, the Italian community wanted to have power in America, and they wanted to do it through banking. Um, so they had the Bank of Italy, and then they merged the Bank of Italy with the Bank of America, and they put the word America on it so everybody would think it was 100% American. And uh, Bank of America became a multi-billion dollar power move for the Italian community. And also the Jewish community has similar power moves. And the, the Jewish community actually, it, and, I mean, they're just pretty... They're pretty extraordinary in uh, in the way they concentrate. They concentrate as hard on get, making their children wealthy as we we as we concentrate on making sure our kids are the best rappers, the best twerkers, the best basketball and football players, right? And uh, and so it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with basketball, football, and twerking, but it does mean that uh, we might want to take notes from the fact that they uh, they put as much energy into that wealth culture as we put into sports. So they got power plays everywhere. Um, media. Their control of media, I believe, is driven by the fact that because of what they what happened to them with Hitler, uh, because, you know, they, they they had Hitler, a guy who was using propaganda to smear their name in the mud and make them look a certain way uh, so that they could kill them with, without any consequences. They said, we're not going to let this happen anymore. So we will control Hollywood and we will control as much media as we can get our hands on so that nobody else can control our image but us. Right. And then what happened is, though, that power kind of kind of corrupts. So instead of just controlling their own image of themselves, they started controlling the images of everybody else. That's why I tell you guys to evacuate Hollywood and start focusing on the black side of Hollywood, which is you know kind of being built in Atlanta and some of these other places. Right. And uh, so so I would say that, you know, that same sort of desire to accumulate assets right, that the Italian community had when it came to banking, the Jewish community had when it came to Hollywood. Uh, black people have to do the same thing. Um, I just got off the phone uh, with, with a friend who is um, working with a group of people in Atlanta to buy literally like 600 acres of land in down in Georgia. And, uh, and they're going to actually talk about it at the All Black National Convention if you want to actually be an investor in the project and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and, I, I, and I love what I was hearing because uh, I believe that um, you know, I believe that that's kind of the solution, right? And uh, and I see Terrence is asking, is there an investment club? 
for um, for our film production. Well, you know, maybe at the convention we can talk about that. I mean, the convention is kind of a think tank. Like, that's kind of what I want. I want ideas. I want us to kind of figure out what our next power move can be. And uh, and so once the project comes out, I'll do my best to lay it out where the public can invest in it. You just have to be careful because there's a lot of rules and laws and stuff you have to make sure you're, 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 you abide by. Um, but overall, I really think that those sorts of moves and, and really making a culture of acquisition is really important, right? So if you start telling your kids right now, um, owning land is critical. You must own as much land as you can. You must own as many businesses as you can. You must buy you buy shares of stock too, right? All that stuff, like sort of making acquisition, like I'm going to gobble up acquisition. I'm going to be greedy in terms of controlling and owning things. Um, then that makes a big difference too, because then what you've done is you shifted the value system of young people, right? Uh, the reason the Jewish community does so well financially is not because uh, they're just naturally better at money. It's because it's a cultural value. It's culture that drives all of that, right? So so in their culture, if you come home and say, hey, mama, I scored 40 points at the basketball game last night, um, that might get a little bit of applause, but it's not going to get the same applause as you actually going out here and doing something in terms of business or wealth or, or whatever the case may be. I remember when I was a kid, I remember when I used to um, run track. And uh, my father didn't really go to a lot of my track meets, and I was captain of the track team. And I would come home and tell him I got my name in the paper because I did good in track meet. And he was like, I don't care. You know, that's not a big deal. You know, that was kind of a mean way to say it. But he was like, I, all I care about is what you do intellectually. All I care about is what's going on with your your academics, right? And uh, and so I'm not saying that, that that's kind of probably a little bit extreme. You probably could have said like, congratulations or something. But still, though. Uh, I think that's very different from like if I come home into a family where they were super excited about sports and not excited about anything else. So um, anyway, let me keep going. Let me keep reading here. All right. So uh, let's see here. So I'm going to go to page 101 in Black Labor, White Wealth. Uh, again, you can get a copy of Powernomics.com. This is Dr. Paul Anderson's book. He says the, pa the pattern that emerged was a direct correlation between the relative power of a foreign nation and the status of its immigrants in America. When America was a de developing nation, for instance, England was powerful and wealthy. Immigration data reflects this pattern. The English settlers held positions of power in the new country, and their people in Europe had unlimited immigration rights into this country. Other less powerful nations like France and Germany were allowed fewer immigrants, but based on the descending importance of their home countries in the world order. Powerful countries and their citizens were respected. So now the next section says blacks and ethnic immigrants compete for resources. A continuing flow of immigrants decade after decade from 1607 to the present day came believing that America was abound with freedom and wealth. Common sense dictates that they had anticipated they would face the kind of life most black people face. Immigration would have, if, if, sorry, if, if they had anticipated they would face the kind of life most black people face, immigration would have ceased immediately after the first boatload arrived. The flow of immigrants never ceased because they were never treated like blacks. As a matter of fact, ethnic and racial immigrants historically have been a wedge between whites and blacks, giving whites an alternative to interacting with blacks. Each time in history, either before or after a war, when the American economy was expanding and could have offered material economic benefits to blacks, a new influx of immigrants or refugees arrived to fill the void and further exiled blacks from fruitful participation in the national life, according to historian Dan Lacey. Process this for a minute. I want y'all just... Stick a pin in that real quick. <sighs> Dr. Anderson wrote this book, what, 30 years ago, right? Okay, now I want you to fast forward to 2021. 
Um, right now, we, we're in the middle of the pandemic, and what's happening? Well, now you've got an economy where they pretty much said no jabs, no job, right? If you don't get the jab, you're out of there, right? Well, who's which group is the, the problem child in terms of getting the jab, right? It's us, right? You know, not to say white folks are are, doing, are, are, are feeling the same way. There are a lot of there are millions of them as well, but we're kind of the ones that they, you know they they they're promoting with rappers and and celebrities, and we're we're just not falling for the okie doke. A lot of us are just not going for the banana and the tailpipe. We've seen this before. We saw this in the last election. So there's a lot of folks that are just not doing it. I'm not telling you to do it. I'm just saying there are a lot of people who are not doing it. So what happens now? Well, uh, that means. That, you know, if you're a nurse, you you know, in a lot of hospital systems, you're going to get replaced. If you are working, you know, they, they fired they fire people by the hundreds, right? Because they're like, look, if you don't want to get the jab, you got to go. <clears throat> well, where are they getting that labor that's going to replace, you know, all those people? Uh, a lot of that labor is going to come from overseas. Um, a lot of uh, the jobs that you seek to get, and I'm not saying that the immigrants are all terrible people or the immigration is always bad, but... I've noticed that as well, that there are a lot of companies that really go out of their way to make sure that there are so many visas available so they can get people to come and work for their companies. Uh, even Kyrie Irving in the NBA, um, you know, the NBA is recruiting a lot of people from other countries to play in the NBA. I mean, you know, pretty soon the European players are going to, you know, start pushing the, the brothers out of there. Right. So um, so it, it, this this kind of thing with with immigrants kind of being an alternative labor class. Um, this is also something else. You, this is also something you would notice uh, if you realize a lot of the jobs that are being held by people from south of the border now are jobs that used to be held by black people. If you go through a lot of parts of my home city of Chicago, you go to construction sites where, uh, you know, 40 years ago, there would have been a lot of black people working there. Um, now, you know, it's, it's going to be maybe a Mexican thing or whatever. Right. So so this is kind of an ongoing theme. Dr. Anderson wrote about it in the early 90s. But uh, we see signs of that everywhere right now today. And uh, it's not meant to be. And I know when we, we say things like this, people interpret that as being anti-immigrant. It's not really anti-immigrant. It's really pro-black. It's really kind of saying us first. You know, like we, we were here first. We're old. We're old by this country. Why do you keep bringing people in from the outside when the resources are limited on the inside? Um, so let me keep going. A major myth is that there has been a competition. See, there you go. Dr. Anderson addresses this. He says a major myth is that there has been a competition between blacks and ethnic immigrants. There has been no such competition. European immigrants or European ethnics simply bumped blacks from whatever they were interested in getting because they were higher in the order of social preference. After they finished competing for jobs, housing or union control, blacks then applied for anything that was available. If racial customs did not exclude blacks, they optimistically waited until jobs or housing were passed down through the ethnic hierarchy, extending from English down to Jewish. As competition for resources increase and blacks become more frustrated, conflicts for power, resources, or even basic rights are developing between blacks and all ethnic and racial groups who rank higher than blacks in the order of preference. If blacks' marginal level of subsistence does not improve, they will become the common denominator in every social class. Clash. Since the 1980s, blacks have clashed with Arabs in Cleveland and Detroit. In the early 1990s, New York and Boston were outraged over the slaying of blacks by Jews and ethnic whites. Violent confrontations between blacks and Koreans, Vietnamese, Laotian, and Cambodian merchants have arisen across the country in cities like Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles. The continuous conflicts in Miami between blacks and Cubans have ignited four major riots since 1973. 
In some instances, blacks were angered by a single offensive act. At other times, the riot was a response to what blacks perceived as a pattern of offensive acts. Remember the movie Do the Right Thing? Radio Raheem got killed at the end. You know what I'm talking about? You remember that? I mean, this, 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 to me, that, that film kind of personified exactly what Dr. Anderson is talking about. Centuries of unjust racial subordination to immigrants has generated a smoldering tension between blacks and those who came to the community from foreign nations higher in the preference order than blacks. Today, there is little cooperation, political or otherwise, between blacks and minority groups. For the most part, ethnic minorities do not support black causes. They have been getting a free ride at black people's expense on civil rights and minority programs. As members of loosely formed political coalitions, uh, air quotes, they are mostly quiet while blacks agitate, but they are quick to stake their claim on affirmative action benefits won by blacks. From Los Angeles, California to Miami, Florida, conflicts arise between blacks and ethnic groups as they seek their share of power and wealth in the mainstream beyond the shadow of blacks. In the 1990 mayoral election in Chicago, Hispanic leaders leapfrog between black and white, white and black factions, offering support wherever there seemed to be the most to gain for their Hispanic communities. David Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York City, lost his reelection bid in 1993 along the lines of racial issues. All the ethnic blocs except Puerto Ricans voted against Dinkins. Hmm, that's interesting, right? So it's an interesting perspective, right, to break down. And uh, and by the way, if you just arrived, uh, we, we do this book club every Wednesday night at uh, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, some of you have asked how you can get recordings of all the other lectures we've done to this point. Uh, you can just go to drboysbookclub.com uh, if you want to find it. That's drboysbookclub.com. And uh, if you want to know where to log in to come to the free uh, book club uh, every Wednesday, you can go to blackkeystogreatness.com. You get access to my life class as well. Um, that's blackkeystogreatness.com. And uh, also, um, at the All Black National Convention, we're not just going to talk about these issues. Dr. Anderson is going to come in for a discussion at the convention. But we're also going to focus on things that Dr. Anderson has alluded to that I think are very important for our people, like um, survivalism. Uh, you know, it's been brought to my attention, and I've been thinking about this for a while, that, you know, we really are in, a, in bad shape if, if things go bad. You know, if you, if you, we need basic things like clean water and food and all that. We have a long way to go in terms of building that that kind of future. And I really think that um, it's important to stop and sort of think about those things. You know, what if what if the grid goes down? What if there's a nuclear war or whatever and the grocery store doesn't have food anymore? How are you going to survive? So uh, Maj Teray is actually coming to the convention. He knows a lot about shooting guns. Uh, Farmer Brown, the MC, and John Henry uh, and some others are going to come in and talk about things like growing your own food. Um, also, Queen Afua uh, will be there to talk about health and eating healthy food so that your immune system is strong. Uh, Nuri Muhammad is a guy that I invited to speak as a keynote because Nuri is just smart about everything. And uh, Nuri is just a great black leader and uh, one of the men who um, I think it, it best embodies just what we want our sons to look like in the future. If you don't know about Nuri Muhammad, you got to look this brother up. He's extraordinary. Uh, we're going to have some other people there. A lot of real estate guys are going to be there, real estate women as well. Um, I, uh, Julian Gordon, uh, uh, Jay, Jay from um, Jay down in Atlanta, uh, Jay Morrison uh, in the Tulsa Fund. I, I, I like talking to Jay because Jay knows how to raise millions of dollars, and he did that with the Tulsa Fund. I, I was one of the founding investors in the Tulsa Fund. I'm glad to have done that. And uh, the Black House is amazing. If you haven't been down to the Black House, 
Uh, but also there's another Stephanie DeBerry, who's um, really, really good at real estate. So we got a lot of real estate people to talk about things like land acquisition and property uh, acquisition. Um, attorney Nicole Compton is an expert at starting up your business and, and filing all your paperwork. Uh, we've got some relationship people. Uh, Dr. Alicia, of course, my wife, uh, who's a relationship therapist, Dr. Adrian Carter. If you don't know about him, he's extremely good at what he does. Uh, and then you got some others, Dr. George James. Uh, just so many good people that are going to be there. So I hope you'll take a look. It's allblacknationalconvention.com. And uh, by the way, if you're listening online, I'm going to go ahead and have to shut off this online thing uh, because my phone's about to die. Uh, but if you want to come into the book club and join us for the rest of it, uh, just go to blackkeystogreatness.com. I'll put the URL on the screen. So if you go to blackkeystogreatness.com, you can log in and join uh, the rest of the book club meeting. All right. So uh, so here's what uh, we're going to dive into.